The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Shall we pray? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it was just last month that we celebrated the baptism of our Lord, and we were introduced to that first part of today's gospel reading. We saw how, how Jesus came purposefully to be baptized by John in an act of surprising solidarity with sinners, an act that was accompanied with an amazing event, Heaven itself was ripped open and the Spirit coming down upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And and then those reassuring words, you are my son, my beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. This is Jesus' public entry into the world stage as Mark narrates it. Jesus has come to lead his people back to God. And although Mark's account is exceptionally brief, The lectionary reading today brings us back to this dramatic event. It is the first Sunday in Lent, and the spotlight returns to Jesus, to the amazing endorsement by his Father of of his love for Jesus and for us. Because as we saw, every time someone is baptized, heaven is torn open and the Spirit descends and we are claimed as God's beloved. As this is fundamental to Jesus' identity and ministry, so it is for us and our ministry in the world. And the point is not the point not to be missed is that we are welcomed into the very life of, of the triune God. And so, yes, it is a glorious thing to be a Christian. Well, in the verses just prior to this morning's texts, people came from Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And if we are familiar at all with the Psalms and also the prophets, we'll know that Jerusalem was considered the center of Israel's faith and national identity. Zion was God's chosen place where he would live among his people. And every year, people went up to Jerusalem for the feasts. And if they could, it was three times a year. And there's a whole section in in the book of Psalms from Psalm 120 to 134 that provides songs as the faithful ascended to Jerusalem, to the center of the world, to the place that Yahweh had chosen to make his home. Geography matters in Scripture. So when we read that people are coming from Jerusalem to the Jordan, there's much more going on than might meet the eye. Because context is everything in Scripture. For the Hebrews, as an Exodus people, the Jordan River was that last barrier to entering the promised land under Joshua. And crossing the Jordan was as significant as crossing the Red Sea, particularly since the entire generation that had participated in the actual Exodus died in the wilderness. The Jordan River was a case of divinely orchestrated deja vu. 
It was Israel's formation as, as the new people of God for a new land, the promised land. And the framers of the lectionary understood this significance. Genesis brings us back to the new start with humanity as the waters of the flood subside. God renews the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and 2 with Noah and his descendants through the renewal of the covenant itself. It's established through God's initiative, and, and God's purpose is to bless every living creature through Noah and his family. The floodwaters that destroyed others who had rebelled against God and would have nothing to do with him bring Noah and his family to a place of newness, of new birth, as a new humanity with a new start. Humans, image bearers of God, of previous generations had failed to be the blessing they were called to be, and God, whose purposes cannot be derailed, makes a new start. Noah's salvation marks a baptismal birth of a new people. Well, Peter clearly makes this connection as well. He describes that God had waited patiently for people to return to him in the days of Noah while Noah was building the ark as a witness against the ungodliness of the people. However, he points out, only Noah and his family were saved through water. And Peter connects the dots for us, and he links this baptism, which he says the flood prefigures it is a sign that's much more than ritual cleansing. It is the new beginning of a new way of life that will finally be everything that God designed it to be because it is guaranteed by nothing less than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And this event is dramatized as, as Jesus comes up from the water of the Jordan. It is, it is what our baptism invites us into as our bodies are dripping with water and we are forever marked as Christ's own. We form part of the community of the baptized, the new humanity that Jesus is forming and of which he is the representative the solidarity with Christ in baptism ensures us that we share in nothing less than his identity. We are anointed by the Spirit as sons and daughters, the beloved of God. We're welcomed into the life of God with open arms, members of the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the new Israel, as Paul will explain in his letter to the Galatians. And so, and so the stage for the unfolding of the good news from God is set. And the scene is nothing short of amazing. Jesus is publicly affirmed. He's presented as God's son. He's the fulfillment of the prophetic announcements made centuries earlier. This is a pivotal point in Israel's history, a new beginning. Heaven and earth come together as never before as Jesus leads his people as the new Joshua to form a new people for God and for his kingdom. And then suddenly, bam, intentionally, the very same spirit that anointed Jesus now drives him into the wilderness for 40 days. The connection with our 40-day Lenten journey is, is obvious. And the church got this very early on. 
Lent has been practiced in some form or another since the century, the first century, right after Jesus' ascension. And even before that, Scripture reminds us of the 40 days of rain during Noah's time, Moses 40 days on Mount Sinai, Israel 40 years in the desert, Elijah 40 days in the desert as well, the 40 days of preaching repentance to Nineveh, and now Jesus is driven Led, no, actually, the Greek word is he's thrown into the desert by the Spirit for 40 days. And for some profound reason, the collective wisdom of the church says that we need to enter that experience too on our way to the cross and celebration of Jesus' victory over death, hell, and sin on Easter Sunday. It's part of the good news of the Lenten journey. And yet, it, it, it seems so counterintuitive, right? I mean, sharing life with Jesus, knowing the Father's loving embrace, entering life with God is so glorious. Seeing the Spirit descend from a torn heaven is breathtakingly impressive. Who wouldn't want that? And yes, we should be doing cartwheels in our living rooms or down the aisles right now. And so going into the desert doesn't make any sense. If this is the new beginning, why not get on with the business at hand? Why, why not set out a plan for action? Why not skip a few verses and move ahead directly into the calling of the disciples and get the project of forming a new humanity underway? Who wants to sign up for 40 days? in a wilderness? Well, part of the answer lies in what and who Jesus faces in the wilderness. He's there to be tempted by Satan. And Mark gives no details as to the nature of the temptation, so I suggest it's prudent to leave that aside for now. But what is clear is that Jesus is going to form a new humanity, a new people, and if he's going to do that, he needs to make up for the sins of our first parents who represented humanity at the dawn of world history. Satan tempted them in a garden where Adam and Eve were surrounded by all kinds of fruit and they weren't the least bit hungry. And Jesus, on the other hand, is tempted in a desert where he's fasting and hungry where everything is stacked against him, and yet, and yet he resists the temptation. Angels came to encourage him, not to drive him away from the Father's presence. This is a cosmic battle. Mark says that wild animals were with him, but so are angelic beings. And Jesus brings us into the victory of resistance through his solidarity with us in the desert. We can resist temptation through Christ's power. But there's more. The wilderness is a place of encounter with God. The wilderness is, is, is a place to leave behind things that don't really matter. Uh, it's, a, it's an opportunity to reorient one's life, to, to reset one's priorities. The desert is a place to enter deeply into the silence and the solitude where we meet God through prayer and fasting. This is the place where we not only face our inner 
darkness and our sinful tendencies. It is where we learn to bow before the God who's there looking for us. It is the place of our repentance. This is part of the good news of the Lenten journey. There are no shortcuts to resurrection glory. And at the very outset of our journey, we are invited into the solitude, the silence, the stillness where God himself will meet us. You know, we don't, we don't get to pick our wildernesses. Like Jesus, we are led, we are driven, or sometimes even thrown into them. Devastating sickness, job loss, a marriage that's gone stale or fragile, the termination of a friendship, financial woes, the death of a, a loved one, the unexpected battle with depression, a move to a new house or apartment, anything that disorients us and reduces life to emptiness. We're, we're left all alone in a strange place to face demons, our shadow side, and yet God himself. Whatever we might have leaned on for support, the scaffolding that normally holds us up is, is suddenly gone and we enter into the dark night of the soul. We've been exiled to a hostile environment where we think we will die unless God comes to us. But then, because we gradually become aware of the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who has led us, driven us, and thrown us into this place, we begin to realize that God is up to something for our good. Teachers of spirituality through the centuries have seen the value of the wilderness, pointing out passages like Hosea 2, where God says to unfaithful, rebellious Israel, I will allure her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her heart. And God intentionally exposes the fickleness of other lovers that would turn us away from God, from ideologies that tempt us to go to other places to find encouragement or satisfaction. And no, he, we, we learn to long again for God in the stillness and the storm of the desert. And God seeks to woo us back to himself. It's in the dark night of the soul where we learn to seek God not first of all the gifts of God, but God himself. And slowly, painfully, everything is stripped away. We're left with a, a hunger for God. There is an intense thirst where nothing else matters, nothing else satisfies, nothing else makes sense. We lose our appetite for things, for comforts, and the only thing that matters for us is God. And he becomes our refuge in a weary land. There's a strange irony to walking the Lenten journey this year. The word quarantine is derived from a Latin word that has made its way into Spanish, quarantena, which is linked to the number cuarenta, or 40, meaning a 40-day period. 
and originally to be quarantined was to be confined or to be isolated for 40 days. Well, we all know what that means. We've experienced isolation. Our community of friends, our social networks have largely become virtual, and we can't visit people, we can't go out for a meal, take in a concert, go to a stadium or to a arena for hockey. We can't even do some of the therapeutic shopping at Limeridge Mall. We can't gather as a congregation. And, and while it's entirely natural to long for the day when this will be a distant memory in the past, Lent invites us to take a different approach. What if we saw this COVID Lent as an opportunity to reset, to seek God in the quiet, in the silence, in the solitude? We seem to struggle with the concept of solitude because we often think of it in terms of privacy. Or at best, we reluctantly put our lives on hold, waiting for things to get back to normal, and all the while missing an opportunity to get close to God. Instead of becoming discouraged with our reality, a reality that's beyond our control anyways, spiritual teachers would encourage us not to resist but to embrace the opportunity to accept the invitation to enter the wilderness. Just a few days ago on February the 14th, one such spiritual teacher passed away. The Hungarian-born Jesuit priest Franz Jalix was 93 years old. And during the 1970s, he worked as a priest among the poor living in a slum in Argentina. And one night, 300 police officers and soldiers kidnapped friends and a fellow priest, tied their hands behind their backs, covered their heads with a black hood, and brought them to an undisclosed location where they were kept for five days, almost without food, lying on a concrete floor. After drugging and torturing the other priest, the captors realized that these men were not communist agitators, they were not terrorists, because apparently he only talked to them about Jesus. And so they were promised freedom the following, the next Saturday. But that never happened. Instead, they were brought to a private house where the hoods were replaced with eye bandages and their hands were tied in front of them. Jalix describes his journey of rage and disappointment and sadness and despair and fear and weeping during the next five months. For five long months, his eyes were bandaged day and night, his hands were tied, and his feet were shackled. It's hard to imagine a worse kind of quarantine. And yet, eventually, Jalix and his companion embraced the desert. And they began to use what the Orthodox Church has often called the, the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As a constant breathed prayer. And with time, the rage, the pattern of rage and disappointment and sadness and fear and weeping came to include extended times of quiet. And when he was finally released, Jalix noted that those five months turned out to be a time of intense purification. 
a kind of depression as well as a form of aggressiveness that had haunted him prior to his captivity, he says, was completely gone and never returned. He says the key was focusing on Jesus. Jalex writes, Jesus Christ has passed through and suffered in the great dark zone of all humanity. He invites us to go with him. He carries us through our darkness. All we need is to be ready to shoulder our cross and bear the suffering. Paul says that he is prepared to bear Christ's suffering and death in his body so that Christ's resurrection may also be manifest in his body. And he goes on to say that sin, the darkness in us, separates us from God and from others. We are wholly received into, into the eternal love of God only when all the darkness in us dissolves. And he explains, and this is the point, love alone dissolves the darkness. Love alone dissolves the darkness. So what if we embraced COVID restrictions as an invitation to know God more deeply, to enter more profoundly into union and communion with God through the practices of contemplative prayer? And it can be done in a group. It doesn't need to be done all alone. And if anyone's interested in learning more about this, I'd be happy to explain the practice, or you can talk to a fellow Benedictine oblate, uh, Peter Tigelar as well. But allow yourselves to be loved and, 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 and to love God. The point is that, needs to be stressed this morning, is that, is that the wilderness, the desert, is an essential place on the path of spiritual life. And while practices and lessons learned there are meant to accompany us through life, the wilderness experience is not the end goal of the Lenten journey. The kingdom of God is the goal. That's our third point. You know, Mark seems to be simply making an editorial comment as he presents Jesus' public ministry to us, but, but the reference to John the Baptist's imprisonment is a crucial piece of information, a reference that we might be tempted to skip over to get to the real business of what Jesus came to do. But we need to pause here. Look at what Mark writes. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, we, we need to pay attention to this for a variety of reasons, not least to ask the question, why was John arrested? Well, it was for his preaching. And what did John preach? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Do spiritual U-turns and, and return to God. Restore broken human relationships. And, and it was his plain preaching that got John into trouble with Herod. It landed him in jail because he dared to defy the Roman authorities' ego-tripping lifestyle that had made Herod a law to himself. John dared to present another standard a standard of integrity and faithfulness for everyone, not just for the Jews that was in keeping with the prophets and their proclamation of the kingdom of God. And it was this preaching that would ultimately get John killed. 
And so it would have been perfectly understandable if Jesus would have said, you know what, it'd be a little bit more prudent if I would wait a while and see what's going to happen with John. Wait, wait until things calm down a bit. I should maybe just lie low for a bit. It's best not to rock the boat. No, no need to be fanatical about anything. You know, I've waited 30 years. What's another couple of months? But Jesus doesn't wait. In fact, it seems that John's arrest is Jesus' cue to begin his ministry with all the political consequences that his preaching will ultimately imply. Dr. Esau Macaulay, a black theologian who was recently hosted at Redeemer, makes the point that on one level, we can look at the entirety of Jesus' ministry as an act of political resistance. Jesus will speak truth to power. And when he is finally sentenced to death, the maximum political authority in the land will have the final word. His death will be a form of political expediency to maintain public order so that the religious leaders will even have the audacity to say to Pilate, imagine this, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. In other words, if you let him go, you are undermining the Roman Empire, the authority of Caesar, and the entire political structure of the day. I'm not sure that we've always appreciated the fact that Jesus' ministry, his kingdom message, leads him to direct confrontation with the empire. In part, this might be because our political views are often shaped by partisan politics, and bringing partisan politics into the pulpit is something that we shy away from, and rightly so. What we miss, however, is that there are clear political and social implications of the gospel. The very fact that Jesus should preach the good news of God that is defined as the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, should awaken us to the fact that history would never be the same again. The kingdom of God with its concern for justice and peace has come near in Jesus Christ. And you know, power structures of this world will come and go. The Roman Empire, as influential as it was, is today nowhere in sight. Yes, there are impressive ruins, the Colosseum, the crumbling statues, the vestiges of Roman law and jurisprudence, but the Roman Empire is no longer a world power. The kingdom of God, however, has come near, and it has stayed and it has spread across the globe. But that's not all. Once again, geography is important. Jesus begins his preaching in backwoods Galilee. The revolution of love that he brings doesn't happen in the halls of power. It's not with the movers and the shakers. It's in Galilee far away from Rome or Jerusalem. And those who respond with joy to the good news of God are the despised, the ritually impure, the ones who don't make the cut with the religious or the political establishment, those who break the Sabbath rules because they don't have the luxury to take the day off. They will be described in Mark's gospel as the crowd, sinners, 
tax collectors, prostitutes, the sick, the excluded. For these people, the gospel of the kingdom is good news from God. And so following Jesus on the Lenten journey is not simply a a liturgical event. It's meant to be for us a, a way of life. We share baptism, wilderness, and kingdom. This, this liturgical journey is, is a way of reorienting our lives. It's, it's, it's a mysticism with our eyes wide, wide open. If, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to hang out with the people that Jesus hung out with too. We need to resist the ideologies of human empire and power struggles, of unhealthy competition and upward mobility by choosing to follow Jesus intentionally to the Galilees, to the back alleys of our world, to those considered insignificant, to the outsiders, in order to practice the kind of fast that Isaiah preaches for us and to us in chapter 28, to loosen the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to share our bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into our houses, to cover the naked. Lent is the opportunity for that kind of radical repentance on a personal and collective level. And so Lent is good news. It is a time in our church year that inspires us. And so as I close, let let me remind you that Lent invites us to resist defining ourselves by the worldly standards that insist that we are what we do or what we possess, so that instead we come again to claim our belovedness as children of God. And Lent invites us to live our baptismal calling in the here and now. Lent invites us into the desert where we resist Satan's lies, his misuse of Scripture, and his temptations by deepening our relationship with God through prayer and fasting in silence and solitude. Lent warns us to resist thinking that everyone else needs to change except us, except me. Lent invites us to resist a way of life that exploits the vulnerable and tries to sell us a vision of power or privilege that dehumanizes groups of people. It rather calls us to a resistance of faith, hope, and love. In a hostile world, Peter calls us to live as exiles. We don't belong. Lent is a call to an act of political resistance in which we insist that there's another way to organize life as members of the polis, of society. And the perspective of the kingdom of God inevitably clashes with every human project that rejects God's way of doing things. Lent is an invitation to resist despair and to think that things will never change 
And rather, Lent calls us to stand on tiptoe as we await the coming of the kingdom of God in all its fullness and glory. We are reminded of this as we come to the table this morning. God sets a table for us before us in the wilderness. And as we gather this morning, whether here or in our homes, Christ meets us as the host of this table. He gives us his body and his blood, and he assures us of his love for us. But he also reminds us that we are the body of Christ. And he takes us, and he blesses us. Remember your baptism. And he breaks us through our wilderness experience. And then he gives us to be life for the world, to announce, to demonstrate, to embody the good news of the kingdom of God. We gather in an act of defiant hope because sin will not have the last word, death will not have the last word, COVID will not have the last word, dehumanizing policies and practices will not have the last word. We're on a Lenten journey And the last word belongs to Jesus. And on the cross, he will say, it is finished. He will die, be taken down, be buried, but then he will rise again. And that's where our hope lies. It is not an exercise in wishful thinking. It is a hope that is as real as the bread that we will eat and the wine that we will drink. It is the banquet of the kingdom. Amen.